Dustin Woodward to the stage. Come on. Awesome. Well, hey, you guys can go ahead and be seated. And I, uh, I just want to say, you know, sometimes people mean well, but sometimes they say things that they actually don't live out. And I just want to say that your pastor, your pastors, um, I have known Matt for, I was guessing nine or ten, and so if you said it, I'll just go with ten too. Um, this guy means what he just said. I, I walked in and saw the hashtag for ABQ. There's a reason your church is called City Church. There's a reason he's the pastor of your church, and he really does mean um, for unity in our city. And, and Matt, I really believe that you guys are going to be a vital part in leading that. Um, you've always meant that. And it's always meant something to me, and you've inspired me a lot. Every time I see you, something about church unity um, comes out of your mouth. And I think that that's a huge calling for you and your church. And thank you and Amber for letting me be here today. You guys are amazing, amazing people. Can we give your pastors a huge round of applause? They're pretty awesome. Um, I, uh, like Matt was saying, my name is Dustin Woodward, and I um, am the associate pastor at Copper Point. My dad is our senior pastor, and uh, let's see. In January of 2020, I know this because we were talking about it, in January of 2020, my parents will have been on staff as a pastor or senior pastors for 40 years. Um, that's a long time, right? So I've grown up in this church my whole life. I was born in Albuquerque at Presbyterian Hospital. I, was, I grew up in our church. I became the youth pastor, young adult pastor. Now I get to serve alongside my dad, and honestly, um, it's the joy of my life. My dad's my best friend, my hero, and um, he, he wanted me to tell you guys hi and thank you for having me as well. And he's a little bit jealous and mad, so you're going to have to have him sometime too. So I'm not mad. I'm joking. But um, he was like, well, tell Matt if he's having you. He's going to have to have me sometime too. And I'm like, all right, I'll tell him. I'll tell him. But um, he, uh, we love your guys' church, and you guys are always, again, making a statement of unity. You guys are a passionate church. Just walk, I just want to say this. If you are visiting, man, you guys have walked into an amazing, amazing church, because if you felt what I felt, you walk into warmth, friendliness, and you walk into the heart of God here, and people treat you like, um, like Jesus would treat you. So um, give yourselves a hand clap, and then I'll get started. I think you guys are an amazing church. I want to really quick just show you a quick picture of my family uh, really fast. I am married. My wife's name is Mandy. She is our worship pastor at our church, and then we have four kids. So our, I'll go through this quickly. Our oldest daughter is Avery. She's 14. Aiden over here is 13. Asher on this side is nine, and Aslan in the middle is four, and they are a handful. Um, this morning, I, was get, I went to our church early this morning to say hi to the volunteers and stuff, and I was walking out, and Aslan, our littlest, goes, Dad, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going to preach at a church. And she was like, like, are you leaving on an airplane? And anytime I get a chance to go preach somewhere, I always come back, I just bring her a sucker. Like if I go to Dallas or where, I'll, just, I'll bring her back a sucker and that's all she needs. And I was like, well, I'm just, no, it's actually in Albuquerque. I'm just driving over there to go preach. She's like, all right, well, just bring me back a sucker. I'm like, okay. So we had to stop at a gas station on the way back to the church. But um, they're a handful, but they are awesome. Um, I, uh, you guys are in a series right now. It's called Jesus, Jesus is Greater Than. Um, and I titled my message, Jesus is Greater Than Hopelessness, and I watched two or three of the sermons leading up to this one, and uh, Matt, you're a phenomenal, I'm going to compliment you a lot, I guess, but you're a phenomenal communicator, um, and it's been a really cool privilege to even watch some of your services and to catch up with where you guys are at. The book of Hebrews, when you first talked about Hebrews, I was like, all right, Hebrews, all right, let's go. I mean, this is a complicated book. But Hebrews chapter 6 is where we're going to be today, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and... Um, I love, love, love this book 
because it really, I think, speaks volumes to where we are today in our society. Because the book of Hebrews um, is obviously written to non-believing Jews, the Hebrews, and believing Jews. So it's written to Hebrews who have accepted Christ along with the Hebrews, the Jewish people who had not accepted Christ yet. So this book today is written, Hebrews is written to people of God Some of them think they are of God, but they really don't know Jesus. It hasn't gone from their minds to their hearts quite yet. But then there's another group that Hebrews is written to, and those are to the Christ followers, where they don't just vaguely believe in God, they actually believe in Jesus as God, and he has radically transformed their lives. So two groups of people. And the reason why that speaks to us today is we probably, in every church in America, have those two groups of people sitting in our chairs. Not intentionally necessarily, but some of us, and I've gone through seasons of saying, yeah, 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 I'm all in. I believe in God, I go to church every week, but in those seasons where I was a little bit more distant than I thought, the idea of who Jesus was really had not gone from my head to my heart and transformed my entire being. I may have gotten into the habit of going to church, I may have gotten into the habit of even reading my Bible some and praying some, but it had not transformed my life. I remember being in my late 20s, I was a youth pastor, and somebody had asked me randomly, just walking around, they said, hey, you know, to, I, I have a mall or something. And we got into this conversation, and this person abruptly just said, hey, so when was the last time you brought someone to your church? And I'm like, whoa, that's easy. Um, I, I couldn't think of, of anybody. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm standing on our stage telling people to invite people to church, and all of a sudden it hit me, I am saying I am living something that I actually am not living to the fullest. I, I, I am more consumed at that point in my life, I was more consumed with what I was getting out of church and what I was getting out of God rather than what God wanted to do through me. And I think that is really the greatest pitfall in the church in America, in our city, in every city in our country. And when we sit in church, we are always as Christians fighting what these Jews in the book of Hebrews were fighting against. We have to constantly fight against getting into a rut, getting into too much of a routine, and all of a sudden Jesus becomes something we know about rather than a person, a God that has transformed our lives. And we have to be very, very, very careful with that because our default is to go to um, being lazy with our Christianity. Will you guys agree with that? There's nothing like jumping in deep right off the bat, right? So let's read real quick um, Hebrews chapter, and I'm gonna be toward the end. Um, Hebrews chapter six, 19 and 20 is where I want to Start. So this, this whole chapter, um, the whole debate with once saved, always saved is in this chapter. Not tackling that today. I'll leave that to Matt. Um, then we've got, uh, it kind of concludes with this idea that our hope is like an anchor. And that's where I want to talk about what is our hope? What do we really hold on to and what really changes us, um, changes Christianity from being head knowledge to a heart transformation? Starting in verse 19, says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, there's so much history packed into this, I'm not gonna go into all of it, but this is a reference 
to the Old Testament uh, tabernacle, the Old Testament temple, when you had to go into the Holy of Holies. What this is saying is Jesus is our forerunner. He goes before you into the presence of God, which in the Old Testament was lethal, right? And what he did is, what this is saying is he went onto the cross, died for us, went into the lethal area to die so that the curtain could be torn apart so we could have and experience the presence of God without dying every single day of our lives. So that's a very, very, very quick version. If you're not familiar with that recently, search it. It's fascinating. But what I want to center on is the idea of this anchor, that we have this hope, this anchor for our soul. The anchor is Jesus. The anchor is the truth of who Jesus is. But what, what does it mean by an anchor? Um, when we think about our souls, what this chapter is telling us is that our souls need an anchor. We have to have an anchor. And what I was just saying, because by default, what do our souls want to do? Our souls want to drift. Our souls, if we are not intentional every day with transferring head knowledge to heart transformation, what happens is we begin to drift and slip into the version of Christianity that sits and soaks in church, soaks in God, but eventually sours. We have Christians who have sat far too long They have soaked in the word far too long and they've allowed themselves to sour because it never went from here to here. We have people getting mad in churches about advancing the kingdom of God and new people coming and get saved, young people coming in, people that don't look like them. There are actually Christians out there that are against churches advancing into the darkness of a city because it makes them uncomfortable. Did you know that Jesus never once promised that we could ever be comfortable? He never promised us that. He actually promised us the opposite. He didn't look at his disciples and say, guys, for the rest of your lives, it's gonna be really comfortable. Just sit, soak it all in, find a good Bible study, attend it for 20 years, you're good to go. They all died for Jesus. That's not how I would define being comfortable, right? Would you? So our souls, by nature, are like a boat in a rough sea that desperately need an anchor. Desperately need an anchor. Verse 19 talks specifically about that. So here's what I wanna ask. What is it about an anchor that makes us feel secure? I don't know if you've ever been on a boat, and I know you referenced this a couple weeks ago, but I've been on a boat that we forgot to put the anchor in because I'm not really a fisherman or a boatman. Is that, is that what you call it? I like being inside with air conditioning, guys. I'm not gonna lie. So. Um, I, this one time, my grandparents had a, had a beach house, and, and we went out on, their, on my grandpa's boat, me and my brothers. We don't know anything. So we're, like, going out into the water. We forgot to take the anchor. So we're, like, fishing, and then all of a sudden, the, the engine stalls. We're like, this is awesome. And we start drifting so fast. It was mind-blowing how fast we were drifting because we didn't have an anchor. Finally, because of the grace of God, the engine came on, and we, were, we lived to tell the story of how we were horrible fishermen. But it was the, one of the scariest moments of my life, honestly, There's this massive sea, it was rough, we don't have an anchor, and we are drifting, and I'm starting to see the land get further and further away, and all of these crazy thoughts start coming into your mind. And you immediately know why there is security in an anchor. Why do we feel secure with an anchor? Number one, because it's attached to us. It's attached to us. Like, I feel secure because that thing is attached to me. It's attached to me. The second reason why we feel secure with an anchor is that it goes to a place that we cannot go to attach to us to make us feel secure. So I want you to think about it. What about an anchor makes us secure? It goes into the water, but it's not the water because the water is the problem, right? It's not that you just, oh, well, yeah, the anchor just goes down into the water. No, because it's the water that's messing me up. 
The water in this metaphor is our world. Our world is a rough sea. So the anchor doesn't just go into the water. What is important about the anchor, where it goes? It has to go to a place I cannot go. It has to hit the rocks at the bottom. It's got to hit the sea floor, and it's got to go somewhere that I physically can't go to latch onto something I cannot latch onto to give me security. So when the Bible says that Jesus was the forerunner and went to where we couldn't go, that's what this, that's what this verse is saying. It's saying Jesus is the anchor because he went into a realm that we cannot go to hold on to something we could not hold on to physically or spiritually so we could live this life tethered to Jesus, the Son of God, and not drifting every single day, finding ourselves believing anything, going anywhere, and changing the word of God. We have an anchor, a hope for our soul. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about hope like, I hope I get a good birthday present, or I, I hope, it's not a meek hope. When the Bible says hope, it's we have a hope. It's a noun, not a verb. It's not I'm hoping, it's I have a hope. A hope is a truth, the truth of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to hope we have an anchor. He wants us to see that we already have one. And it's up to us to recognize it, that he is the anchor that we want. You guys with me so far? Okay, I didn't, really didn't plan on going that serious that fast. I blame the Holy Spirit. But okay, let's go. Um, so our souls drift. I, th I thought this was an interesting um, fact. So when I was looking up anchors in history, there are anchors written on the walls in the old ancient Roman catacombs. And these historians were saying that an anchor before a cross was the symbol of Christianity. Remember back then when Christians were being executed, they weren't like wearing crosses around their necks because that would be like us wearing an electric chair around our neck because it was a method of execution. So back then they actually drew anchors on the walls and anchors were the symbol of Christianity, because it was the symbol of what Jesus did for us. Went to a place we could not go to do what we could not do so that we can weather the storms of this world and have a hope for another world later. I love that, that that was the picture of Christianity. So every single one of us in this life have this innate desire for to, to, to do what Jesus does, to give us this fulfillment in relationships. I want you to look at just like our society for a second. Every movie, every song on the radio, everywhere you go, everybody in our culture is talking about how there is something out there that's going to ultimately fulfill us, right? Everybody. And for the most part in American culture, it boils down to a few things. It's either love, romantic love, it's money, it's something to do with sex. It's something to do with one of those categories. And the world promises us, right? Every little Disney movie from the time, I'm not like anti-Disney, but so don't think I'm like boycotting or anything. I like Disney. But every little Disney movie, right? The princess is there. They grow up. There's all this like these problems. And then one day her and the prince get married. And what scrolls across, this, uh, across the screen at the very end? Happily ever after. We don't get to see when they get back from the honeymoon. We don't get to see them with bad breath. We don't get to see them when the prince is selfish. We don't get to see them in a normal relationship. And so little kids are growing up thinking, happily ever after, that's going to finally fulfill me. So we have an entire generation growing up thinking that there's a human being out there that's going to do for them what, they, what God can only do. So people end up getting married thinking that's gonna fulfill them. They get married and quickly find out that, yeah, this is good, but this is not God. This is a good thing, but it's not a God thing. And what we find out is that relationship we are craving so bad for fulfillment 
is in fact Jesus. But until we know that and experience that, our world is shaking. Our world is shaking. One of my new favorite um, passages is Acts chapter 4. We did a series on Acts this spring at our church. And Acts chapter 4, toward the end, it's a story where Peter and John just get out of jail. And the rest of the early Christians are gathered, and it's a very chaotic time in Christianity. People are getting um, kidnapped. The Christians are getting kidnapped and thrown in prison. Families are being ripped apart. Children are being taken away. Um, the Romans and, and even some of the Jewish leaders are, t- are seizing land, and they're just taking apart all of these people's lives. So Christians were extremely anxious. And so they were praying in this area, and Peter and John join them. And when they're praying, it says the Holy Spirit came to where they were, and the ground began to shake. When you research this in the original language, it's not a metaphor. The ground actually began to shake when they began to pray, when the Holy Spirit came. And so when you look at this, this is what was shocking to me. So this is how I want you to see this. Before they went to God in that moment, and the Holy Spirit became real to them again since the upper room, so they're in Acts chapter 4, and it's like they needed a fresh wind from the Holy Spirit, right? So the ground began to shake. But think about this. Before that prayer, the ground was shaking them, right? So the world is shaking them. They were shaken by the world. All this chaos, the fear of of everything happening, and people being taken away, their money being seized, their land. They're so afraid. The world is shaking them. When they go to God in prayer and humility and say, I need this to go from my head to my heart again. I've got to re-anchor in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is sent. He shakes the ground. So originally, the world is shaking them. Then God shakes the believers, and then they come out of Acts chapter 4, and the believers shake the world that was once shaking them. That's the pattern. But the problem is we think we can have a one-time experience, and that's it. But we are without an anchor. That's the default. Every single day, we need to wake up saying, the world is shaking me. And if I, do, if I go to anything but God for my fulfillment today, then the world is gonna continue shaking me. But I choose to go to God, and then God will shake me, and then I today can shake the world. That's the pattern we have to live. But we slip into this monotony and really lazy Christianity. I do it, you do it, and we have to be intentional about not allowing it to happen. That's what we have to do. So unless we put our full trust in God, we're putting our trust in something else. And I mentioned a few of those a few minutes ago, but we have to be so careful about what we put our full trust in. So let me ask you, do you right now, just pause for a second. I'm just going quick, but I want to, I want you to think, where are you at with this whole head to heart thing? I'm not trying to say if you, if you call yourself a Christian, you're not, but what I'm trying to say is ask you, where is your Christianity right now? Is it something you acknowledge that is true or is it something you live out because you actually believe it's true. Not perfect. So let me ask you what that person asked me in the mall that day. When was the last time you invited, brought someone to church? When was the last time you stood on the sideline of one of your kids' games and more than one or two people next to you knew that you were a believer? When was the last time that you viewed that area as a mission field, your work as a mission field? Because the church in the New Testament, as you know, if you're a Christian, was not about a building. It was about people gathering and then being sent out as the church. So you are the church at your workplace. You are the church on your team. You are the church at your school. How good of a church are you? Because we like as Christians to look at churches and say, how good of a church is that? I'm going to go on Yelp 
and I'm gonna give it stars. I'm gonna write a review and say that this was wrong with the bathroom and that was wrong with the wall and this was wrong with that. I think, I think church yelpers and reviewers are gonna stand before God one day and he's gonna say, well, let me review you. How were you as a church in your school, at your workplace? Because it's very easy to criticize churches. Very easy. But what about if we viewed ourselves as one? How many stars would you give yourself? So we have to put our truth, our hope, in a truth that is unchanging. And again, it's Jesus. But what does it look like? But what does it look like? Jesus is truth. He said he was truth. And I, I want to read a passage real quick from John chapter 16. This is Jesus talking. And he's talking about the, the coming Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role with teaching his, his followers and teaching them and training them and when it comes to truth. This is what he says in John 16, 13 through 15. When he, when he the Holy Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. 14, he will glorify me. That's important, that word glorify. He will glorify me because it is from me that he, will, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. I, I think this is really interesting. This word glorify in the original language means to put weight on. So when we sing songs in worship that talk about glory, giving glory to God, glorifying his name, it's saying I am putting my full weight and trust onto God. So what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit, Jesus is so much the truth that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit is saying Jesus is so much the truth that even the Holy Spirit is going to put his weight on what Jesus said, spoke. Jesus said he was the word, is the word. What he spoke is the word, and the word of God truly is Jesus because he is truth. I love what he said, that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is not going to give us new revelation. He's going to reveal old truths. The Holy Spirit's role is not to give people words outside of what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit's role is to come and to glorify Jesus and make real what seems not real to us about the truth of the Bible. I, I grew up, and I know this is a spirit-filled church, and I grew up in a spirit-filled church. We are spirit-filled, and there's random times throughout the history of our church where you kind of have some people that will come up to you and, and say things like, this is what God spoke to me, that, that you're gonna move to Africa, and you're gonna marry someone from another country, and you're gonna do this and this and this, and I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm 13, man. Like, I'm just trying to get a, I'm just trying to get a B in math. You know, like, it, 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 people are saying stuff. And this is what's interesting. And I'm not trying to discount prophecy at all. I think all the spiritual gifts are very real. But what we can't do is put words in the Holy Spirit's mouth because he's not even doing that. He's putting all of his trust on Jesus. So how dare we manipulate the Holy Spirit in trying to say something to someone that the Holy Spirit didn't actually say? Because we're doing something that is very bad at that point because we're not glorifying him or God. So let me ask you, are you putting your full trust in God? Your full trust in God. When we think about truth and putting our full weight, um, we have to be very careful not to fall into the trap of wanting to alter truth based on societal pressure. Um, I think a lot of times people would look at Matt look at me and kind of these younger pastors or whatever that are kind of coming up and, and 
people get nervous. Some of the older saints get nervous. Like, everything's getting so bad in society. Are these younger guys, are they really gonna hold to the truth? And, and what's gonna happen? And I can say overwhelmingly, yes. I am so excited about the future of the church because we have a generation of church leaders coming up who don't wanna alter the truth. There are always people out there that do, but Matt, me, a lot of these other guys that I'm meeting, guys and women that I'm meeting, they are just so excited about the truth of Jesus and not compromising. But we have to be careful of in our world today because there are a lot of people who are so close to the truth, but not close enough. And that's exactly how Satan tries to get us, and it's exactly how he tried to get us all the way back into Genesis. Satan does not come to you with a blatant lie and say, why don't you jump off that cliff, and when you do, into that sin, it's gonna kill you. He does not come at you with obvious things, because you would go, that's obvious, dude. I am not going close. He comes at you with a counterfeit truth. It's like a counterfeit dollar bill. It's so close, but has no value. That's what he comes at us with, and that's what he's doing in our society. He's getting so close to the truth with a lot of these uh, theologians and even younger guys and girls coming up, some of them, it's so close, but it's not the truth. The truth is the word of God, and the Holy Spirit in me reveals it in a deeper way. We have to go back to this, and it's, going to, it's all about putting our weight on it. Um, in the month of May, last month, is this June? No, July, two months ago, my wife and I got to go to London for a few days, and when we were there, we were just doing like the whole sightseeing thing really quickly, and um, we went up the Tower Bridge. Has anybody been in the Tower Bridge in London? Anybody been there? So if you go there, if you're afraid of heights, or, um, I'm telling you this, I'm warning you ahead of time, because I'm afraid of heights, deathly, like deathly. Like I go, to, I go to Coronado Mall with my kids, and if one of them were upstairs and one of them runs towards the rail, I could pass out. Like just running toward them, like oh God, you know, I, I can't handle it, okay? So we go up, we go up the, the tower, and I'm already a little bit nervous, but then we get up there. We're in the elevator. My wife took care of all of the plans and everything. We're in the elevator going up, and the girl goes, hey, are you guys excited to walk across our new glass floor up top? And I looked at Mandy, and I was like, this is the end. This is the end for us. This is, I'm joking. I looked at Mandy, and I was like, did you know about this? And she was like, I promise I didn't. I was like, what's happening? How did you not know? I'm like, I started losing my mind, you know? So we get up there, and the door's open, and here's the picture. So we, we walk across this, and I kid you not, when we went, it's packed. There's little kids jumping on the glass. And I'm like, seriously, this came out of my mouth. I'm like, whose kid is that? Who are you horrible parents? Like, I, I was so mad at it. I, I, get, I lose my mind with heights. I'm like, you know, I just go nuts. And so we're there, it's jammed, okay? People jumping, this guy's like laying on it. I'm, I'm starting to have that hot, flushed feeling, and I'm just holding on to Mandy like, Mandy, I... This is like, I promise you, I'm not crazy like this in every other area, but this area, it's bad. So I hold on to Mandy's belt loop like I'm four, okay? And I have my eyes closed, and I'm following her. I was like, Mandy, don't walk on the glass. Please don't walk on the glass. She's like, okay, I'm gonna walk on this side right here where the wood is, and we start walking, and it's crowded, and I'm just doing this, and I'm, I accidentally opened my eyes one time, like, oh, God, it was bad. All of a sudden, there's this little old lady that stopped right on the wood, and she's looking down, and she's taking pictures, and I was like, Mandy, why are we stopped? Why are we stopped, Mandy? Why are we stopped? She's like, there's a little old lady right in front of me. I'm like, push her, push her. I didn't really do that, but I wanted to. And she was like, hold on, hold on, I can't, I can't, I can't. And finally, we make it around and I survived, I survived. And we came down the stairs and I was like, I'm never going up there again, I hate that kind of stuff. It, it, I, I look at it, it makes my knees weak. But I keep this picture up for a second. It's such a great illustration though of what people wanna do with truth. Let's say the glass the glass was sturdy. 
it may not, we may not like it, but that glass, they said, could hold a tank, an army tank on top of it. I didn't care. But anyways, it was sturdy. But this is what we do with truth, okay? We know what's real. I knew that that glass would not break. But because of a fear in me, I didn't trust it and wouldn't put my weight on it because I didn't believe it to be true. So what did I do? I found a way around it. I was close. I got to say I went up there. I was close, but I didn't put my weight on the glass. So if somebody said, did you walk across the glass floor thing on the tower bridge? I could be like, well, yeah, kinda. And I think that's how a lot of people are with Christianity. Can we actually say, yes, I am a Christian. I put my full weight on truth. Or are we trying to get around on the outskirts because of something we don't like in the Bible? Well, guess what? I don't like some things in the Bible. The essence of truth is that it steps on your toes. There are things I read in the Bible and it's like, whack. I'm like, I don't like that. That steps on my toes. That steps on my friend's toes. That's somebody I love that's living that way and I don't necessarily like truth, but I love Jesus and he is truth, therefore I accept it. We don't go into math and when the math teacher says two plus two is four and our kid comes home like, I don't like two plus two equals four, dad. Well, it doesn't have to equal four. I mean, we can kind of go a different route if you want to. Truth is truth. We look at our kids and go, two plus two equals four. It always will. It doesn't matter if they don't understand it. It doesn't matter if they don't like it. It doesn't matter if they don't like the teacher. The fact is, the truth is the truth, and that's what it is with the Bible. It needs to be packaged in love. We need to be intentional. We need to be graceful, loving, but truth is truth. And I think it's important for people to know that the best of pastors, the most godly people in the world, there are days they read the Bible and something just hits them like a truck, and they don't necessarily like it. But again, God didn't say, you are always just really going to like everything I have to say. He never promised us that. He just said, this is the truth. Grow to love me, grow to love the truth. And sometimes we try to wrap our minds around the truth of what God said, rather than getting to know the God who spoke the truth. We have to understand that truth is truth. I'm gonna read another scripture real quick. Jeremiah 17, five through eight. I love this. This has become one of my favorite passages. Jeremiah the prophet says this. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope, there's that word hope, for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord put their weight on, and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. If you, everybody has seasons of dry heat and they have seasons of, dr of drought, we have seasons of possible barrenness. We all go through those desert seasons, but we all, in this word right here, it promises us that we never have to stop producing fruit because if our roots grow deep into this river, into this stream of truth, this stream of hope, who Jesus is, when our roots grow deep, when the storms of life come, when the desert seasons come, we can weather the storms, we can grow through the heat, and when everything else seems like it's dying, somehow, we're thriving. That's the hope that he gives us. He doesn't say you're gonna avoid every storm. He doesn't say you're gonna avoid every drought, but he does say I'll sustain you through all of them. 
I'll sustain you through all of them. And you don't have to just survive, you can thrive. You can thrive through those seasons, but what does it come down to? Where is your anchor? Do you have an anchor? Where is your hope? What have you put your hope in? What have you put it in? And here's some of the things that Americans put their hope in the most. Love, like I mentioned, career, money, looks is a really big thing right now. I'm all about, you people wanna work out, go to the gym, but some people have become so consumed with their body that that has become their hope. But what happens if something happens to your body? What happens if you break something or lose a limb? What happens? Is your hope gone? Are you destroyed? Is all your hope in your career? What happens if you're let go? Or do you fall apart into nothing? Did you know the definition of anxiety in the New Testament means to break into pieces? Did you know that? So this word anxious or anxiety in the New Testament means into pieces. The reason why all of us mostly feel this, that our lives are in pieces, is because we have put our weight on something that was not meant to hold God pressure. And when we put God pressure onto a person or a thing, a career, romantic love, whatever it might be, it starts breaking and then we start breaking. I promise if we get this right, I understand that there is very real clinical anxiety. I understand that and know that. But I also understand that there is also a spiritual anxiety that comes from putting our weight on something that is not God. And it breaks, therefore, you break. There's a very fine line between good and God things. Good thing and God things for this, they're fighting always for this God-sized hole in our heart. They're not always sinful things. A career is not sinful. Love, romantic love is not sinful, necessarily. There's all of these different things that aren't necessarily sinful. They can be good things, but they're just not God. And that's when all this stuff starts getting really, really tricky. So if we're Christians today, and I'm getting close to wrapping up, but band, hold on for one second. I shouldn't have said that. But okay, I, I, I wanna really make all of us understand this. So just, if we can just get this last thing. If I were to sit down with each of you individually and say, you know, where is God on the priority system in your life? If you're a Christian, if I were to ask you that, we're all by default gonna give the Sunday school answer right off the bat, probably go, oh, he's number one. He's at the top. We would like to say that. But let me ask you, really, really, truly, where is your anchor in the priorities of your life? How much time do you spend with God a day? I don't wanna get religious about this or necessarily, but this is important. How much time do you spend with God a day? How much time do you think about his will for your life in the community? How much time do you spend thinking about the fact that you are the church when you're not actually inside the building of the church? How often are you training and building up your kids, grandkids, with the love and truth of Jesus Christ in a world that's spiraling out of control? What are we teaching our families? How are you living this out? Where is your anchor? And the answer to that question might be the answer to a lot of the problems you're having right now in your family, in your marriage, or in your life. If you feel like things are out of control, spiraling, think, think, things just feel like they're about to crumble, it might very well be this. We are saying we are centered and grounded on a God that we actually do not know. I know we don't like to hear that, but man, it can be the truth. So how do we get grounded in this God? How do we sink our anchor deep into the truths of God? Really, it all comes down to this. All comes down to this. Honestly, growing up in a pastor's home, my parents were never like horrible about it, like read your Bible kind of thing, but I always viewed reading the Bible as this like boring thing. I grew up with ADD, I don't know if you can tell, but I grew up with ADD, and I, uh, I would start reading the Bible and I would either fall asleep 
or just like sneak out my window and go play with my friends in the neighborhood. I, I, I didn't love reading the Bible. I mean, honestly, today as a pastor, there's sometimes, like you're going through the book of Numbers, I'm like, I mean, will the Holy Spirit actually know if I skip the book of Numbers? You know, like, can I, can I just get through here? Like, there, there's sometimes now I, I, I don't love it, but you don't even know sometimes you need it in the moment until later. Being in the word and understanding this and allowing the roots to grow deep changes you. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager, you're 10 years old, or you're 90 years old, this is important. So it can be intimidating though. How, how, do, how do we read it? Where do I start? What do I do? The typical answer is, well, book of James. You know, go through the gospels. I don't know. I mean, you know, everybody has their own way. But I can tell you this, wherever you start, I just want to fly through these very quickly. Don't be afraid. These are each going to take like a minute at the most. Ready? There's five questions. These are not my points. Don't be afraid. You, ever, you guys are looking at me like you're afraid. Okay. Five questions I want you to ask yourselves when you're studying the Bible. These are the questions that I use for me when I'm studying the Bible that have allowed this to not be boring to me anymore, and I crave getting up every single morning. It has transformed my life, my marriage, me being a father. When I set my day on the word of God, it changes everything, and I can tell you how to get the most out of it, or at least how I get the most out of it. Five questions to ask yourself. Number one, after you're done reading the passage, you say, how can I praise God in light of what I have just read? How can I praise God in light of what I've just read? Did you know no matter what you read in the Bible, there's always something that you can look at and say, thank you, God, for this, for this truth. I praise you today, right now, in light of what I have just read. Whatever it says, you say, God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the hope that you just wrote. Thank you for this hard truth today, God, and we praise him in light of what we just read. Number two, what does this show me about what's wrong with me? What does this show me about what's wrong with me. That's what I was talking about a second ago. The Bible steps on our toes. And I think this is that part where we have to have humility and look at ourselves and say, and, and repentance. And say, repentance is like a really, like a cultural bad word right now. And I, I think it's weird that it is. Because repent just means turn around. We have people, you know, at the university, like those really kind of weird people that are standing on boxes and like screaming at people, repent, repent. So people don't like that word. But what this shows is a humility. Repentance is showing God, I'm not God. I repent. I'm willing to turn around from my ways. What does this verse, or what does this passage say about what's wrong with me? Number three, what problems appear in my life if I forget this? What problems appear in my life if I forget this? What wrong behaviors, what harmful emotions, what bad attitudes will emerge if I forget what I have just read? God, how, how important is that? Because it will. Something negative will emerge in your life if we don't ask this question. Number four, what should I now firing to or stretching toward in light of what I've just read? So I just read, what now should I be aspiring to or stretching toward? What are you calling me to do? This alone, this question does not allow us, this is the very thing that just says, hey, you cannot stay stagnant. You've gotta move forward. It's one of those things that it challenges you and says, okay, what do you want me to do now? Where are you calling me to go? Who do you want me to win? Who do you want me to share my faith with? Great question to ask. And number five, why are you showing me this today, God? Because if we believe God is sovereign, he doesn't, you know, he's not like waking up in the morning going, oh, he's reading Jeremiah today. I, I wouldn't have even known. God has orchestrated all of our steps, the Bible says. And if he is sovereign, he knows what you're reading that day, and he even knows why. And we can ask God, I may not understand why you're just showing me this today, but why? Why? And he might whisper in your ear, I'm not gonna tell you. And that's okay. 
but he might tell you later on. But it's okay to ask, God, why today? What's important about today that I'm reading this? And it's such a good question. Why not last week? Why not tomorrow? Why today? And what this does, just these simple five questions, it just pulls out the importance and the magnitude out of what you're reading. If not, we're just gonna read it like we would read a novel, just a book for our business or a book for class. We're gonna read it, forget it. But if we ask these questions, it pulls out the meaning, it'll, it forces us to have a posture of humility, and we're able to move on from the reading during the day, enlightened and empowered by the Spirit to do what God has called us to do. I wanna, I wanna ask the band to go ahead and make their way back up, and I'm gonna end with a couple of just quick closing thoughts. Hopefully those five questions will help you practically. They've really genuinely changed my life. Um, when we talk about the roots of Christianity, well, that's, that's this. I had somebody tell me, I, I, told, I told our church this last week, but I had somebody tell me recently that, um, you know, they just don't like certain parts of the Bible, so, but they're a Christian. I'm a Christian. I just don't believe certain parts of the Bible. And this was my response back to him. I, I don't get mad anymore. I used to be like hot-headed and, hot and get mad about it, you know. But now it's just one of those things where I go, okay, um, you're a pretty logical person, right? And you're like, well, yeah. And I go, so what do we know about Christianity? Where, where does that knowledge come from? Well, the Bible. So actually everything, everything we know about Christianity comes from this. So logically, if I want to believe this, but not believe what it stands on, then what I believe up here is not Christianity. It's a religion that I have, in fact, invented. Because if Christianity comes from this, but I don't believe parts of it, and this is God's word, then what am I making? I'm treating Christianity like a buffet, saying I like that but don't like this, and like this and don't like that, and God is saying, oh, you're so close but it's like that counterfeit dollar bill. One day, we have to cash in, and it may not have value. Does your truth actually have value? Is it this truth, or is it your truth? Because there is a massive, massive difference between the two. There's a lot of people in here who probably, with a crowd this size, have lost some hope lately. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian, doesn't mean you're bad. Man, I. I lost a grandmother about a month and a half ago and it, it wrecked me and I didn't lose all hope, but there's those moments where you just get, you just feel, it's not good. And you're asking those questions that everybody asks and even the greatest men and women of God in the Bible, where are you God, where are you now? What are you doing? Those aren't sinful, ungodly questions, they're just human. But deep down through it all, we have a hope. And that hope is Jesus. And I'm gonna end by reading Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 again. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I, uh, I just want you to remember that first. We have a hope. You have a hope. Our hope is not just this weak hope of hanging on. Like, I hope. It's not that. We've got to remember, English... We, we've, we've just butchered that word. It's not, I have a hope. It's not meek. It's, I have a hope. And his name is Jesus. That's what we have. I have a hope. I have a hope for my family. I have a hope for our city. I have a hope for this church. I have a hope that we have more and more and more um, just 
bonding with churches and working together in unity. I, what you said about the city, we've been talking about that with our church too. We're at the bottom of every single statistic. I mean, everything that comes out is like New Mexico, 50th on child well-being. New Mexico, 49th on this and 48th on that. And it's like, I'm so tired of that, right? I'm so tired of that. But what changes that? What changes that is Christians saying, I am so exhausted with Christianity being something I know about. I want it to be something that I live out. I want it to be something that God does through me. I want purpose and meaning, and I'm tired of trying to find it in everything else but building the kingdom of God. We have a hope. We don't have to hope that Albuquerque is going to change. We have a hope, and his name is Jesus. You don't have to meek and hope that your, be meek and hope that your family changes. You have a hope, and his name is Jesus, but it comes with rallying your marriage, you as a single person, or your family around Jesus, and just getting it into your family, into your system, to where finally it moves into your heart. If you've been around very many baby Christians, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They get saved and it's up here and they're excited, they're excited. Then it, all it takes is one storm. And a lot of the baby Christians will bolt and leave. They'll get mad at a church. The church isn't feeding me enough anymore. I'm going to go to that one. That's normally what baby Christians say. It's what, it is what it is. But what happens is what God is trying to do is mature you from thinking that Christianity is something that feeds you and turn around and say, I have received from Jesus. Now I feed others. That's what it's about. But if we live our entire lives judging churches on how well they feed us, I'm nervous about what God's going to say when we stand in front of him. Because that is not a godly thing. We have to go back to the basics. Back to the basics. Build the kingdom of God. We have a hope and anchor. I want to pray and then, then we'll finish with this last song. We're singing a beautiful name. What a, not a better song to sing than this right now, ending with this. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand? I want us to pray together. And wherever you're at in life, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just real quick, show me, just with a show of hands, how many of you guys are going through a season right now where, where you just need that anchor to be a little bit deeper than it is right now? You're just going through a season where, where you need God to hold, hold on to you and you hold on to God in a season. Awesome, a lot of hands, you can put them right back down. I just wanna pray for all of us, but if you raised a hand, I just want you to zero in on God I want you to zero in. I told you about those, those early Christians where the ground began to shake. Your world might be shaking you, but one experience with God, he shakes you, then you begin to shake the world that once was doing it to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity that we've had to hear your word. God, this opportunity that we've had to worship each other. God, I pray for every person that just raised their hands who's going through a situation in their lives right now. God, I've been through a lot this year even where I've needed to pray this prayer, but let's pray, God, that I believe that you will be an anchor because you promised in their lives, no matter how stormy that sea is in their lives, in their marriage, in their finances, with their children, with relationships, you promised to be an anchor, and we're asking you to fulfill that promise right now. As we begin to put our weight back on you, as we begin to glorify you in this moment, let the anchor drop and go deep into the stormy sea and latch on to a rock that we could not have latched on to ourselves. God, we thank you for being here today. I pray for the city church. I pray for this church, this church's future. I pray for Matt and Amber. I pray that the 
greatest, best days are to come, and they are right around the corner. I believe that with all of my heart. God, your hand is on this church. Let it be a beacon in our city. Let it be a beacon to our world. I pray that you would bring people in numbers that we could possibly not even understand, God. People walking in off the street that need hope, that need light. God, that so many numbers of people that we can't even hold them in the building, and you're creating problems, but they're good problems, God. Bring them in. Our posture is open, and we believe and know that the best days are yet to come, and they are coming quickly. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us sing.